Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 192. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avenu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we approach you once again as we always do, um, dependent upon you. Uh, we are reliant upon your Holy Spirit to open the words of the text to us, to bring it alive so that we can make proper applications, so that we can allow the um, words to penetrate and um, cause and affect a real change in our life where those changes are needed. Um, Lord, we seek to be pleasing to you, and so for that reason, we want to be hearers of the word and not just, I'm sorry, we want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Uh, we want to do what the word says. We want to uh, lead lives that are exemplary. We want to turn away from sin. We want to um, draw others to you and to glorify your great name and build up your kingdom on this earth. So thank you, Lord, for these times that we're able to pour into your word and to look it over and to to examine it and to meditate on it and to chew on it and to to hide it deep down in our heart. Uh, may it be a fruitful study. Be with um, each and every student who is t- uh, joined me tonight. And for those who wanted to join but couldn't for whatever reason, I pray that you'll bless them where they're at as well. Um, continue to raise us up and strengthen us and give us a voice. And uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for these um, weekly studies. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, and um, this is an hour-long study on uh, these live internet um, sessions that I conduct week after week via YouTube and um, iTunes and things like that. The first 30-minute segment is given over to a study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17, uh, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? And um, what we've been doing is we've been working our way through a passage that you can see on your screen right now. And um, I've been reading this passage from Matthew, from Mark, and from Luke, lately in Luke, because of some of the extra content that shows up right near the very end. But this time I'm going to cycle back around again because we're near the end of the um, study. And let's jump back around again to Matthew. Let me read the passage in question first, and then I'll um, jump into the written study that is available on my website that I wrote. Um... In Matthew 9, starting in verse 14, using the ESV version that you can see on your screen, which is entitled, A Question About Fasting, here's what we read, quote, verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, but the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. End quote. And so this is Yeshua answering a question that was put to him about why he and his disciples aren't fasting. And um, we've talked about how that there are a variety of ways to interpret this passage. One of the things that we're faced with right away when we read through the passage is we notice that, um, especially if you corroborate this against the other versions, like in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Mark and in Luke, we find that there are factual statements, right? Yeshua answers the question about something that's actually taking place about the fasting, and then he supports his answer, whatever teaching he's trying to convey, he supports it with some um, 
parables. Two parables, to be sure. Um, one parable has to do with um, uh, sewing, patching up garments. And the other parable has to do with um, putting new wine into old wineskins. So what we've um, learned is that historically, since neither of the parables are directly interpreted by Yeshua like he does in other parables, sometimes he'll say the kingdom of heaven is like thus and such, and then in parabolic fashion, he'll give the parable, and then often the, he'll pull his disciples off to the side, and you know, they're scratching their heads saying, Master, what does this mean? And he'll explain to them, okay, the, the parables like this, and he'll break down all the elements. But he doesn't do that this time. So what historic Christianity has done is they have supplied what they believe are the allegorical meanings behind the parables. And this is what we have arrived at. So I'm not going to belabor the point so we can jump right into my own study. Essentially, what historic Christianity has done for the last 1900 years or so is operating under the understanding that God is doing a new thing. There's that DC talk reference all over again, right? God is doing a new thing. God's doing a new thing with um, the people of God. He's taking his son Yeshua and presenting a new level and standard of righteousness, of obedience to God, of right living, etc., etc. And so, in keeping with that analogy or with that theme, from the Christian, from the largely Gentile Christian perspective, what historic Christianity has assumed is that the meanings of the parables, which are um, used to support Yeshua's initial answer about why me and my disciples aren't fasting, the meanings of the parables are used to support this idea that the new way of approaching God is incompatible with the old existing way of approaching God. The, the new system is going to replace the old system. And so we've introduced this idea of, of the Gentile Christian church is really here to pick up what Judaism dropped as far as the ball, right? They dropped the ball as far as serving God, displaying the kingdom of God, demonstrating God's righteousness. And they had um, really depreciated into this idea of legalism, of keeping the law, of um, upholding the law of Moses, uh, and things like that. And so Jesus' way is incompatible with the old system. The old is really going out. It's on its way out. The new is on its way in. And once Yeshua dies and ascends back to the Father, dies or resurrects and ascends back to the Father, basically the new covenant is upon us. So in Christian mindset, the new covenant is replacing the old covenant, which means the law of Christ is the new, and what is being replaced is the law of Moses. That's the old. The people of Israel were the people of God, but now God's bringing a new new people group in uh, with this new covenant and this new responsibilities to God. And so it amounts to what we've um, labeled replacement theology, even though the Christian church probably doesn't like that term and probably doesn't want to take it to its illogical extreme, replacement theology. But no matter which way you slice it and dice it, that's what, what it ends up with, especially if you're on the receiving end of the negative part of that replacement. If you're the old people group, if you're the Jews who are on their way out, you know, it's bad news for you. So, the initial question, why aren't your disciples fasting, Yeshua plugs himself right into the opportunity to explain. I, well, he doesn't really explain it, but he hints at it. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the long-awaited bridegroom. My father is setting up the wedding, and Israel is the bride, and I'm the bridegroom. And since I'm here with you right now, 
right? The promises of the prophets given to Israel of old are now being fulfilled before your very eyes. And here I am. You've been waiting for me for so long. Here I am. Why would you fast? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, right? Weddings are a time for rejoicing. I'm right here. Why would you want to mourn? Why would you want to fast, right? Mourning and fasting are kind of going hand in hand. So the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from him, right? Meaning he's alluding to the fact that he's going to um, suffer, die, and then return to the father. So the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them, from the bride, Israel. And then, Israel, you can fast in that time. And yes, indeed. Those times came, right? So that's the initial answer to the question. And then from there, we have this, uh, these two um, allegories or these two parables. Okay, so that's what we're working with. Um, as you know, from listening to my commentary, I strongly disagree with those allegories, with the historical Christian presupposition that the old is being replaced by the new. What I um, uh, have come to ascertain is that Rather than ripping out the old system, what Yeshua is bringing is reformation to the old. A brand new man must be born, that's true. And so I've entitled this section of my study, Old Man, New Man, and Messianic Judaism. And what we're trying to um, postulate, in my opinion, in my uh, position here, is that it's not necessary to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can still retain Judaism. We can still retain the law of Moses, the people of God the old way of life, if you want to describe that in keeping God's commandments and things like that. We can retain that system. We simply need to reform it from the inside out by starting with a heart change for each individual. And then from there, Yeshua is going to um, construct his messianic halakha, which is rooted in the commandments his father gave him. And so rather than having the corrupt way of interpreting God's laws, like the religious leaders of Yeshua's day had already done with all their extra man-made traditions, their, their fences upon fences, their minutia, their focusing on the, the tiny parts of the Torah and ignoring the, the, the more weightier parts of the Torah, what Yeshua is going to do is bring the people back to the pure form of his father's laws and get them to understand that he didn't come to do away with his father's laws, but to fulfill them and to rightly interpret them and walk them out and model them as i.e. a life filled with the Holy Spirit, model them so that the people can imitate him as the way they should, right? He is the quintessential Jewish um, offspring of Abraham, son of Abraham, right? Son of, uh, son, of, son of God, son of man, son of God. And so he's going to demonstrate what an what a genuine Torah observant life really looks like. And so we can model that, right? We can walk in his footsteps knowing that as he was pleasing to the Father, then we can be pleasing to the Father if, if we walk the same way that he walked. And guess what, people? He didn't walk in a Torah disrespectful lifestyle, right? He was pronomian. Remember that term we talked about last week? My good friend Caleb Haig, Tim Haig's son, has his website, pronomian.com, which means you're pro-Torah. Yeshua was pronomian. He was pro-Torah, right? He was all for keeping Torah. So was Paul, by the way. It's how one keeps the Torah. What is one's motive for keeping the Torah? Is it so that you can become righteous before God, so that you can earn brownie points with God, so that you can be better than your fellow man? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? No, none of that is true. The way in which you walk out Torah is by the power of the Spirit, and your motive for keeping Torah is the same two laws that Yeshua said are the are the um, most important laws of the Torah. 
uh, which is love for God and love for your fellow man. And that's going to drive your Torah observance. And if as long as you've got that correct motive um, and you're walking by the power of the Spirit, then you're going to be pleasing to God. So let's look at my commentary, uh, which is available on my website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And um, I've jumped all the way to the top of the commentary so you can just see some of um, the overview of what I want to talk about. This is part of my Torah Observant Shomer Mitzvot series that I uh, put together. It's a series on practical messianic living and apologetics, otherwise known as Halakha, and uh, I'm the author. And this study is entitled, An Examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? And the question is posed because of the analogy that historic Christianity has brought to the table. Otherwise, I wouldn't even really be talking about this because Jesus doesn't give us the explanation behind the parables. It's more of a common sense application if you think about it. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Duh, because it's a wedding. Why would you fast at a wedding, right? And let's use some more common sense um, parables. Yeshua's kind of, as I'm kind of filling in, using Luke's rendering. If you've got an old piece of clothing and you want to patch it up, you go out and get a patch, but before you introduce the two together, you need to condition one of the pieces, i.e. the patch. Otherwise, when you put the two together, there's going to be a bigger rip. All right, that's common sense, right? Use your brain. The second parable that Yeshua introduces in Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is this idea of introducing new wine to old wineskins. What's going to happen if you just suddenly thrust the two together without any reconditioning of the wineskins? You're going to burst the wineskins because of the expansion of the new wine, and you're going to not only lose your new wine, but you're going to ruin the old wineskin. So what's going to, what needs to take place? Some reconditioning of the wineskin needs to take place first. And so why would you have to be told this? This is common sense, people. Use your thinking brain. This is to support Yeshua's answer about why aren't my disciples fasting? Because it's a wedding, because you don't fast at weddings, you don't mourn at weddings. Okay, so there's really common sense aspects to his, his application, his answer, his parables. And there's no really need, in my opinion, historically, for the Christian church to have done what they did 1900 years ago or so, which is create these allegories that are um, pejorative to Israel's way of thinking and way of life. So, this is why the question is, are Judaism and Christianity compatible with one another? Most historic, especially evangelical Christian churches that I have dialogued with and interacted with throughout the years, find Judaism to be incompatible with Christianity, meaning once you become a Christian, you can no longer walk the walk that um, is described by Judaism, which is keeping the commandments, Keeping the Sabbath, the, the, the Torah, the festivals, the kosher, um, all of those rituals and things like that. The, obviously, sacrifices can't be done anymore today because we don't have a temple, no priests, no animals. But historic Christianity has come to the conclusion that basically the New Testament has replaced the Old Testament. And that's why they're no longer incompatible with one another. They view Judaism as a religion of works and Christianity as a religion of faith. And this is also a very unfortunate stereotype that's created by um, modern, uh, historic and modern Christianity, because the best um, historical research demonstrates that Judaism was not a religion of works like merit theology, the way we describe it. Yes, you're always going to have people who have that mindset in any religion, even in Christianity, you still have people who think that you can earn your way into heaven by doing good works, right? Um, there are lots and lots of 
um, Catholics around the world who think that X amount of penance are going to, you know, an X amount of rosaries uh, and praying to Mary and things like that are going to get you into God's heaven. Um, so it, this is not exclusive to Judaism. Many, many world religions have this disease of merit theology. But by and large, what we find in the Bible is this overarching concept of nationalism in Israel where we had this idea that as long as you belong to the people known as Israel, and as long as Abraham's your father, like John um, lambasted those religious leaders, you know, you brood of vipers who warned you against the coming judgment. You know, the ax is already laid at the tree, um, laid at the root, uh, you know, and don't suppose that you can say that Abraham's our father, right? All of that is this Jewish nationalism that was um, prevalent in the first century, which um, supposed the idea that God cut this covenant with Israel as a group, and therefore, as long as you're in the group, you're in. There's no real focus on individual righteousness. It's a corporate righteousness, and all you have to do is maintain your place in the group, right, and don't get kicked out of the group, and then you're okay. You're okie-dokie. That was the idea in the first century. It wasn't more so much how, what can I do to get into heaven? It's what can I do to inherit that which is already mine, what can I do to secure it? One of these days, I'm going to talk about the dialogue that Yeshua has with that rich young ruler, where he asks him, you know, a master, a good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And too often we think that he's asking, what commandments can I keep to be saved? But that's not really what the dialogue is about. We'll talk about that a different day. But back to our study tonight. So are Judaism and Christianity compatible with one another? I updated this commentary uh, five years, five? Well, it's been more than five years ago. So I wrote it near, you know, 2015. Haven't put any really huge updates there. Um, but look at the contents. These are the topics that we've been talking about. We introduced this idea of replacement theology, right? The idea that the church is replacing Israel as the people of God. Um, the Torah is being replaced by the law of Christ. The New Testament is replacing the Old Testament. The New Covenant is replacing the Old Covenant. Um and on and on and on and on. And as a good friend of mine who's in the study with me right now is fond of reminding me, if we define Old Covenant as the old man who is sold under sin and a slave to sin because of his uncircumcised heart, his uncircumcised ears, um, if we define Old Covenant using that terminology, which Paul actually does in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, then we can, yes, agree that the old is truly out and that the new truly is in. And I recognize that. That's why we're, when we get to the section titled Old Man, New Man in Messianic Judaism, we're going to highlight those facts using the proper understanding of the word Old Covenant. But that's not the way historic Christianity understands the word Old Covenant. By and large, historic Christianity defines Old Covenant as the law of Moses. And in that sense, they simply say that it is incompatible with the new Christian way of living. You can't keep the law of Moses and keep the law of Christ at the same time. But I disagree with all of those interpretations. And why would I disagree? Because the Bible disagrees. We'll get to that in a moment, uh, uh, possibly tonight, maybe next week. So we looked at examples from Pastor John Piper, examples from gotquestions.org, examples from Pastor John MacArthur, and then an example from Pastor David Guzik. And in all of these examples that you see on my screen right now, we found that the similar theme is repeated over and over again. 
the old, which is the Jewish way of life of approaching God by keeping the commandments, etc., etc., that system is incompatible with Jesus' new way of walking by faith. It's as if to assume that to walk by Torah is not walking according to faith. That's the assumption made by these well-meaning resources that I have uh, included in my commentary. And these are all great resources, people. Let me just stop and plug them for just for like 30 seconds. Do yourself a favor and bookmark the resources, the web resources of Pastor John Piper, gotquestions.org, Pastor John MacArthur, and David Guzik. They all have something in common. They're all free. They also I have another thing in common. They're all super duper um, uh, thorough in their research. Um, they're fantastic. I highly recommend them for your Christian walk, your Christian living, uh, for strengthening you as a believer in Messiah. Um, great resources. I can't recommend them enough, right? Um, plus, uh, in the case of... Uh, of uh, Pastor John MacArthur and David, Pastor David Guzik, they have written complete commentaries on the entire Bible, right? Verse by verse on the entire Bible. That is, that's an amazing feat, people. That's no small thing. That's, that's a lifelong dedication to pouring yourself into the Word of God and to studying um, uh, the resources that God has left for us. So um, bookmark those resources. Those are great resources. So I'm not slamming them. The problem is, Historic Christianity is working from a blindness and a, and a kind of a what we might call a hermeneutic um, um, uh, bias. We all have biases, but this is a biggie. In historic Christianity, the idea that Judaism is not that Judaism is merit theology, that keeping the law of Moses is legalism, the walking, keeping the commandments is incompatible with a lifestyle of faith. This is an historic Christian perspective that is plagued. Christianity for almost all of her, all of the time that she's been in existence. So, um, and then what we did is we finally worked our way to the section that you can see called the old man, the new man and the messianic of Judaism. We finished that. We looked at uh, David Stern, who wrote the Jewish New Testament commentary and the complete Jewish Bible. We looked at his perspective and we, what we noticed is right away, since he's a messianic Jew, he's um, challenged in the historic Christian perspective that the law of Moses is incompatible with the law of Christ. He understands what I understand, or I understand what he understands, however you want to look at it, is that what God laid out for us in the law of Moses is not a religious lifestyle that's incompatible with his son's own theology and teachings. Rather, what God laid down foundationally for us in the Torah is, in fact, the proper foundational way to approach God, and his son's going to come and stand on that and build on that and explain it even further and elucidate and elaborate on it and, and demonstrate it and walk it out for us. And the big difference in the way that the Judaisms of history have been doing the Torah versus the way that Yeshua is going to explain doing the Torah is, you guessed it, a, law of, a, a life of faith and dependency upon the Spirit of God to help you um, uh, uh, be righteous before God. Uh, it's not your own self-righteousness. It's not self-effort, obviously, but it's not even self-identification. If you think you're an Israelite, a son of Abraham, um, you know, a, a good upstanding Jew, you know, circumcised Jew, it's not even those elements, which are all good things in and of themselves, right? Keeping God's commandments, that's a good thing. Being a son of Abraham, that's a bonus, right? That's a boon. Um 
you know, being circumcised physically, if you're uh, an Israelite male, right? That's a commandment of God. You want to keep that. You want to have done that. Um, so all of those are good things, right? There's nothing wrong with having Jewish identity. But Yeshua has to come and rip away all those man-made traditions and 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 uh, personal opinions and group policies that were particularly becoming an- more and more anti-Gentile, um, and um, that were putting keeping Gentiles at arm's length. You know, the conversion policies that were being pushed in the first century. And so the old man, new man in Messianic Judaism purported that you can, in fact, keep the law of Moses. You can be a good, upstanding Israelite, but you just need to um, bring Messiah into your life, allow the Holy Spirit to permeate your way of thinking, and allow that to drive your Torah observance and drive your understanding of sin and righteousness. And thus, Messianic Judaism is a viable way of life, especially if you're Jewish. I mean, hello. But keeping Torah is also open, the door is wide open for Gentiles to walk into Torah observance as long as they're doing it the same way that Jews do it, which is what? Genuine faith in God, genuine love for God, genuine love for your fellow man, a confession of Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, a dependency upon the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, to live a life that's pleasing to God and to fulfill the righteous requirement of the Torah that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. That's the old man, the new man in Messianic Judaism. And now, ready to return to a better way of understanding this passage with Tim Haig. So we've got about five minutes left. Let's take a bite out of this. Let me click on this part of my commentary. And let's just pick up our reading right here. This section is entitled, A Better Way to Understand This Passage. Here's what I have to say. These are my own notes. We've already presented David Stern's thoughts on this section of Scripture. And what I say is that historical context, as well as with theological context, shows that this is probably a much better treatment of the passage and parables in question. If we look at David Stern's uh, 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 notes there, go back and read them on your own if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I continue. The prevailing Christian view of these um, verses, uh, essentially calling for the um, what I call the death of Judaism so that Christianity can take its place. And I say the death of Judaism because really, when we're telling Jew- religious Jews that you can no longer or you no longer need to, keep living the law of Moses, what you need to now do is adopt this new religious lifestyle, which is in line with the New Testament teachings, which looks suspiciously like Gentile Christianity from a Jewish perspective. What you're really telling the Jew is to die to Judaism. That's why I call it the death of Judaism. You're telling him to um, stop living his life as a religious Jew and start living his life as a Gentile Christian. And for most religious Jews, especially Orthodox Jews today, that is simply not an option. Why would you want to li- to to leave your lifestyle, the one you've been raised with, as a religious Jew, even with all of its legalism and its its um, you know uh, perverted views of the of the rabbis and things like that? You still have to understand that the foundational aspects of a religious lifestyle are rooted in the Torah of Moses. And so, when Christianity um, when Christian missionaries go around the world and reach out to unsaved people groups, they don't usually have to tell them that just have to stop keeping Torah. They simply just introduce Jesus to them and bring this new way of living, meaning righteousness, into their perspective. And they just start living according to the Bible, right? You, you, it's obvious that you have to leave uh, idolatry behind and other paganistic forms of, of lifestyle that are incompatible with the biblical worldview especially if you brought those to the table before you got saved. So that's that's understandable. Um, but it's unique to Judaism 
that Judaism is still rooted in the law of Moses, right? This is unique to other religious groups in the world, right? Other people groups. Judaism has this unique place in the world among world religions. And so when Christian missionaries reach out to unsaved Jews, it's a very unfortunate thing that they carry, that the missionaries carry this message of, you no longer need to keep Torah. So that's what I mean by the death of Judaism in my commentary. And so what I say is that what that does is it amounts to a basic form of replacement theology, which is a view that would most certainly be unwanted by any Jewish person in their right mind, whether first century or 21st century, who is seeking the Messiah of their scriptures, right? This is where I'm going to over and over again challenge my Christian pastors and friends and Bible study teachers and seminarians and theologians and anyone else who has the ability to research and study the scriptures. Please, before you tell Jewish people that they no longer need to be keeping Torah in order to be pleasing to God and to walk a life of faith and um, uh, to be in fulfillment of Torah, do your research and go back and read through the prophecies. I'm not trying to be disrespectful in what I'm saying, but it's incompatible with the prophetic uh, promises that God gave to Israel that he would one day corporately take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and open the blinded eyes of corporate Israel so that they can see their Messiah. He would fill them with his Holy Spirit. And in this um, heart transplant that's taking place, that's described by the prophets, part of what takes place is that corporately Israel turns into God's laws and becomes more Torah observant only from a heart perspective. Uh, I mean, from a, from a, a genuine love for God and a genuine love for their fellow man. So that they're actually walking Torah out the way God intended it to be walked out all along. This is vastly different from the description that historic Christianity has handed to Judaism down through the centuries. That what you need to do is just not need to stop keeping the Torah. You just focus on that part of your Bible known as the New Testament. Walk by faith. Love your fellow man. Love God. You know, be, be reliant upon the Spirit and just um, let the Spirit lead you and everything will be, you know, hunky-dory. Without any real clear connection or, or um, uh, foundational um, uh, connection to the Torah. So this is unfortunate. I go on to say uh, in my uh, commentary, replacement theology must be outright rejected. And thus, any interpretation of these passages that we're reading in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that supports the dismantling of Judaism in favor of Christianity is wrong-headed and must, be e- uh, must equally be looked at with suspect. And that's why I said um, that David Stern pointed us in the right direction. And now we're going to allow, in my commentary, Tim Haig to knock the ball out of the park with his home run explanation of Yeshua's words. And so let's take a bite out of this. Speaking of the parable of the cloth, here's how Haig starts. And we're only going to read just this first paragraph tonight uh, since I'm running out of time. And... um, um, like I said, this is really just um, uh, to whet your appetite. Here's what Tim Haig has to say. By the way, Tim Haig is also a well-known Messianic author. Uh, he's Jewish as well. And his commentaries and his books and his website, TorahResource.com, all exist to honor Yeshua and to uphold the truths of the New Testament experience as genuine believers and followers of Messiah, filled with the Holy Spirit and being pleasing to God, but something that sets his teachings apart from other basic 
um, Christian teachings and doctrines is that he's pronomian as well. He's pro-Torah. He's all for Christians keeping and honoring and upholding God's laws, walking them out under the power of the Holy Spirit in honor of Yeshua, the Messiah, who, who, who demonstrated a perfectly Torah-observant life. So Tim Haig is also going to have a pro-Torah pr- approach, and which is why I uh, appreciate his um, comments, commentaries over and over again. Here's what he has initially has to say. Again, we'll just look at this briefly tonight. We'll pick this up next week. Tim says, in the two uh, parables that we read about, incorporating the idea of new, quote-unquote, and old, quote-unquote, the emphasis is upon why Yeshua would choose uneducated men to be his disciples, his Talmudim. That's really at the heart of what's going on. Most of the commentators have actually missed this fact about that Yeshua is actually, when he came to bring his message of good news, of of redemption, of reformation, right, of freedom to the people, rather than choosing the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day to be his disciples, Yeshua went for the bottom of the pile, as it were. He went to the unknowns, to the disenfranchised, to the castaways, to the people who had been pushed out of the high places. He went to the, the you know the scum, as it were, and that's where he found his faithful. Tim continues, what Yeshua did is he opted rather to follow the traditional, I'm sorry, most commentators, Harry's missed the fact that Yeshua chose the, um, the, the less thans when he went and chose his, his 12. Um, and instead, um, uh, many commentaries, Christians, what they do is they opt rather to follow the traditional view that Yeshua is teaching the abolition of Torah laws as incompatible with the drawing, uh, I'm sorry, the dawning of a new era, which he, Yeshua himself, is bringing. So that's our introduction to Tim Egg's perspective on this commentary on this particular uh, passage in the Bible, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. We'll pick this up again next week um, and keep going through uh, Tim's notes and see if there's a really a, a better way to understand this passage than having to resort to either A, the allegorical view where um, Judaism's out and, and Christianity's in. That's the allegory that's supplied by historic Christianity. And that's really the only option out there, folks. It's really the only option besides the kind of the common sense, um, uh, just use your thinking brain. Um, I, my disciples aren't fasting because it's a wedding. Why would you fast? And to prove it, let me give you two parables that drive home the common sense aspect of of why you wouldn't do, you know, why would you, why why you would just do the right thing, right? So really, those are the only two um, options that I've encountered in my research. If you've got a third one that you've heard. Uh, in other words, if you're familiar with the Messianic perspective, please feel free to leave comments in my video section and let me know what you think. But that'll do it now for um, uh, Judaism v. Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I am a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Colorado, the Harvest Congregation, otherwise known as Kehilat the Harvest. You can join us online at www.graftedin.com, or uh, you can visit us in person week after week and join us for our Sabbath services. But if you're still uncomfortable getting out, be sure to um, go to our website at graftedin.com and uh, see the link on my screen right now. Um, 
the uh, the image on my screen right now it points to the YouTube videos that are uploaded to YouTube in case you'd like to just simply watch your uh, Messianic service online. Uh, please feel free to do so that way. Speaking of online resources, why not find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. It's my own personal Torah teaching website that's spelled T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H dot com, TateSayTorah.com, where I park most of my uh, written commentaries. Um, you can see the cluster there right now on the homepage. That represents basically the core of um, most of my written commentaries. It's not the exhaustive list there. If you click each uh, section, you'll find that there's other um, um, commentaries that are available. But feel free to browse around, bookmark the page. I try to update uh, things as often as I can. Um, but if not, be sure to visit my YouTube channel. That's right, I've got a YouTube channel. You can find me on YouTube's um, platform at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries, all one word spelled out there. And as you can see from my uh, image there, I update my channel daily. Typically, I'm uploading videos once a day, twice a day, something like that. So I'm quite busy. So be sure to do take one of the actions that you see dancing on your screen right now to subscribe, hit the um, bell for notifications, um, share the content with your friends and family members, leave comments um, and things like that. That way you'll always be in the loop whenever uh, something new is happening on my YouTube channel. These live internet studies are brought to you week after week. And if you'd like to join us week after week, which again, you're certainly invited to, you're going to need to get access to Skype somehow. And the blue Skype button that you can see on my screen right now, which is available on my um, Tour website, if you were to click that anytime during the live studies, it'll open up Skype right in your browser, especially if you're using either a desktop or a laptop computer. But again, the important details, we meet Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m., and that's the central daylight time. It's taught via Skype, and um, there's no... Um, uh, other software really needed unless you're um, using maybe a smart device or a smartphone then you might need some other software but if not be sure to while you're on my website scroll all the way to the very very bottom and to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and prayerfully consider partnering with me to help me continue to bring these Torah teachings to you free of charge. And the way you can do that is you can give to my ministry and the little yellow donate button there is where you can um, send your uh, donations in. I appreciate your generosity and your prayers. And um, as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We've been working away through these um, notes that are put together by a Christian researcher by the name of um, Roberto Pereira. And if you Google search his name, Roberto Pereira, um, there's a famous, I think a famous soccer player. I didn't know this until I Google searched the name. That's not the guy who put together this commentary. I can promise you it's probably not the same guy. There's a chance it could be, but I'm pretty sure it's not. This is a, a Christian gentleman who put together this commentary. It's on Paul's use of the Holy Spirit in his letters, and we've been borrowing it um, for the purpose of um, supplementing my own uh, section in, in uh, 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 my discussions on the issues of Trinity here. And so we're going to read this final um, two paragraphs here for this gentleman's research, which is very short. 
And then we'll turn back over to my own commentary and um, bring some um, conclusionary thoughts. I'm going to borrow some notes from my own commentary uh, to bring that to a conclusion. Okay. So this gentleman um, picks up uh, that we pick up this gentleman's um, uh, commentary again, right near the top of the page. He says the spirit, and we're focusing on section three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Is he the impersonal force of God? Is he just another way of describing God, right? We already know the common Unitarian Christian perspective or non-Trinitarian perspective. We don't have to say Unitarian. We can say uh, Christadelphian, um, Iglesia Ni Cristo, um, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Oneness Pentecostal, um, you know, Mormon, um, uh, Walmart Church of God, or whatever. You see this little list on my screen right now that I put in post-production that has a list of common non-Trinitarian groups out there. But what we're uh, essentially uh, um, kind of um, comparing is the generic Unitarian non-tripersonal perspective of God with the historic Orthodox Trinitarian tripersonal perspective of God. So you've got, on one hand, a view that says that God is not tripersonal. He's simply one being with one person, if you want to use the word person there in its proper uh, way. Uh, The Unitarian perspective says that there's only one being known as God. And um, he's not tripersonal. Therefore, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about either the power that 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 flows from God that is bestowed upon His subjects, or we're talking about the the thoughts of God that are demonstrated um, in reality, right? Or we're talking about um, just another way to describe God, who Himself is the Spirit. That's what we mean by the Holy Spirit, rather than saying that the Bible is describing a third person of the Trinity. We're seeing that the Bible is actually describing God. It's just talking about his interaction with mankind, and it uses the the language of spirit because this is the way that God interacts with humans um, uh, when he wants to um, dialogue with them and empower them and um, uh, you know teach them and instruct them. So it's natural that there would be personality traits uh, that are described to the spirit because God himself um, has personality right he's not a it he's not a he's not an animal right he's not a construct he's not a thing he's he is a personal god he's just unipersonal rather than tripersonal that's the unitarian perspective on one hand the other comparison that we're working from which is the viewpoint the uh um, the, the version that i go with is that the bible teaches tripersonal god right father son holy spirit three persons but one being of god one essence one nature that's god and the three persons share all share that same nature so that we have not three gods but one god but we definitely have separate and distinct roles that are played by each of the um persons of the trinity and it's a it's a marriage and a dance between um our union between the ontological description of God, where we're describing his being, his nature, with that's the ontological trinity, v- w- along with the economic trinity, right? Describing the roles and functions and purposes that God plays. So that we as Trinitarians, we affirm that um, God is one and yet God is three. But the way in which God is one is not the ways in which God is three. So there's no contradiction. One God, one what, but three who's three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so that all three are God, but they're not three gods. It is that 
Uh, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So that's the careful distinction. This author is focusing on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one, he says, who prepares the way for the conversion of souls, convicting each individual in regarding to sin, in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment, read John 16, and leading him or her toward the full knowledge of Jesus and the gospel per, uh, 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 for, uh, per 1 Corinthians 12. He continues, the Spirit leads to repentance in Romans 2. The Spirit leads, uh, the Spirit generates faith in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And the new birth in Titus 3. And the Spirit seals the believers in Ephesians 1. The Spirit testifies, uh, I'm sorry, um, testifying, yeah, the Spirit testifies that they belong to God in Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, as well as chapter 5, Romans 8, and Ephesians chapter 4. And this author uh, continues with his explanation of the Holy Spirit. These are things that most Unitarians and, and um, Trinitarians would actually agree with when we're talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and function that he does in our lives. Unitarians are Christians, and to that degree, I don't have problems fellowshipping with them on this level of worshiping the one true God and recognizing that Jesus is the one true Messiah and that the Holy Spirit is necessary in order for us to lead lives that are pleasing to God. Um, most Unitarians that I've interacted with, especially particularly the ones that are dialoguing with me on a regular basis through my YouTube comments and um, uh, emails and things like that, as far as I can tell, they are monotheistic and I am monotheistic. They worship one true God and I worship one true God. They believe in Jesus as their personal savior. Uh, they don't believe in works, works righteousness. Um, and I believe in Jesus as my personal savior and I don't uh, agree with legalism and works righteousness. And they believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, and I do as well. So on, on most of the foundational truths, we can agree. It's just there are some groups that have um, um, areas of theology that are vastly incompatible with the Trinitarian biblical perspective that I believe. I think Unitarianism is, um, is a perversion of what the Bible teaches um, meaning it's it's looking at, how does James, Dr. James White describe it? Reading your Bible with one eye closed. The idea that you can walk away with an, a proper understanding of God by um, uh, kind of rallying around the verses that support your theology, but ignoring the ones or, or rejecting them for some reason, uh, either because you disagree with historical interpretation or you think that there's a better way to interpret or you think it's been corrupted or tampered with. You know, there are, there's a plethora of excuses that, that some Unitarians fall back to when they're um, uh, describing uh, why they reject Trinity. But um, the, at the end of the day, what, what seems to be um, the case is that the Bible is actually teaching Trinity, if you take the whole view, right, not just sola scriptura, but tota scriptura, right, not just... Um, uh, only the Bible, but all of the Bible. That's what I mean by sola scriptura, only the Bible, and tota scriptura, all of the Bible. So only in all of the Bible. We have to read all of it, and we have to read the Bible in its um, authoritative sense. Unitarians, some groups, um, like some oneness Pentecostals, I just cannot get with the idea that there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there's only one being, and his name is Jesus. Um and that the Holy Spirit is the kind of the alter ego of Jesus or something like that. Um, so this author is saying there are essential functions and roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. And I think most Unitarians, when they read that uh, the, the paragraph that I just read, would probably agree with me. 
um, with me as a Trinitarian that these are essential um, functions and roles that we need to recognize. The Spirit, he continuously brings about growth in the book of Galatians, uh, sanctification in the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, and the Spirit equips the church for service in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. So, in conclusion to this author's um, commentary, uh, he has this final paragraph. I'm not reading the rest of the commentary. You can see on your screen there's some more stuff that shows up in Greek. I'm not going to go into all those technical things. I just wanted to take just this short section for our own study here and supplement my study with his um, brief thoughts. His final paragraph says, In this process of making efficient the work of Christ, the Spirit reveals, interprets, inspires, speaks, testifies, sins, knows, teaches, guides, and intercedes, right? That's a, that's a great, you know, well-rounded list of what the Spirit does, which, by the way, proves that the Spirit is personal. This idea from the Jehovah's Witnesses that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, like electricity or like the, um, I, I keep somewhat irreverently, irreverently describing the, um, uh, purple lightning that shoots from the Emperor Palpatine's fingertips in, in the Star Wars movies, that the Holy Spirit is, is kind of represented, represented by this, this, this inactive force, right? What? Let me just park on this for a second, like stand on the soapbox and, and preach for a moment. So just bear with me. Jehovah's Witnesses have come to the conclusion based on the Greek grammar that because the Greek Pneuma, which is this first word right here in this um, author's uh, book, right, uh, commentary, pneuma. Or if you don't want to pronounce the P, just say pneuma. But this is the Greek word for spirit. And based on context, this word can mean either spirit, it can mean wind, it can mean breath, right, vapor. Um, but the Greek has grammar when we talk about words. Words can either be um, masculine, feminine, or neuter. And this is true of other languages as well. Spanish, I think, has this feature. French, I think, does. Um, Hebrew definitely has it. But English doesn't. So we, we kind of lose this in our English thought process when we're approaching the text. We don't think of the grammar of a word. I'm sorry, we don't think of the um, gender of, of a word. Um, and by the way, the gender of a word doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that it's describing the gender of the object. Um, so, you know, a, a table might have a masculine gender in one language, but that doesn't mean that the table's masculine. So the point I'm bringing up is that the word pneuma in the Greek is neuter, meaning it's neither masculine nor feminine. In the Greek, it's neutral, it's neuter. And so because of that neuter gender in the Greek grammar, the Jehovah's Witnesses have come to uh, suppose that when you're reading through your New Testament Bible and you have all these places where it mentions spirit, they have interpreted as an it, when we're talking about pronouns, relative and personal, they, uh, they refer to the Holy Spirit as an it rather than a he. There are a few very rare cases where they translate the personal pronoun with a he, but that's based on the context of maybe the like the paraclete passages where Yeshua says, I will send him. And um, uh, since the word paraclete is masculine in, in Greek gender, then um, grammatical gender, then uh, to say I will send him is, is accurate, right? Because we're talking about the paraclete. But those are the only rare cases. Other than that, if you pick up a Jehovah's Witnesses um, version of the Bible, you're going to see that they always translate the Holy Spirit as an it, leading the, one to the impression 
that the Holy Spirit is not personal at all. He's he's a thing, right? He's a he's a he's a power from God. He's impersonal. And because of all that, all the words that it's read about the Spirit reveals, interprets, inspires, speaks, testifies, sins, knows, each guides, and intercedes. These are actions that persons can can perform, right? And yet, according to the the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, it's the impersonal force of God that does all these things. So, um, how they get away with that theology uh, is unfortunate. Um, that's their perspective. I disagree with it. I sharply disagree with it, and strongly disagree with it. But uh, again, they're going to school me and remind me, hey, the Greek grammar is neuter and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I know the Greek grammar is neuter, right? But let's talk about the context of the passages and let's look at the um, point being brought up that the Holy Spirit is doing things um, that are uh, true to some uh, being who has personality, right? Not just an impersonal thing in it. Right? You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Can you grieve your electricity in your wall? Didn't think so. So that'll do it for this part of this particular author's commentary. Um, uh, Roberto Pereira, not the soccer player. Let's go back and look now at my own commentary and um, draw my study to a close. I'm going to read something that I wrote. I think this shows up in paper two. We've already studied it months ago, maybe even a year ago. So it's been a while, so we can revisit it. Um, but this is... Um, an introduction moving into a quote by Tim Haig that talks about a proper approach to um, un, uh, undertaking the study of, of um, you know, studying the nature of God and relating to the God of the Bible. Here's what I have to say. This is my own commentary. Most Christians, both historical and contemporary, often express a convictional belief in the Trinity of the Bible without being able to logically comprehend or understand the full scope of the Trinity as a whole. And I introduce my commentary with those, or I introduce a section with that statement, because in my understanding, I'm going to make a break with most Trinitarians with what I'm about to say here. My understanding of the triune nature of God, he is tripersonal, and he reveals himself as a tripersonal God. This is true. I affirm this, and I believe it with a conviction. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches as well. However, however, when we are approaching God and we're coming to a decision of accepting Yeshua as Messiah, I don't believe that the Bible forces us to comprehend God's triune nature at that decision mode um, juncture in our life. In other words, I don't think it's necessary to force the um, comp the understanding of God's complexity in order to um, bring about the salvation experience of an individual. Instead, what the Bible seems to focus on in salvation um, experiences and, and um, descriptions and formulas uh, that you're going to find throughout the Bible over and over again is a um, focus on Jesus' uh, role in a substitutionary atonement, confessing Him as Lord, confessing your sins, turning away from sin, turning into God, um, accepting Jesus into your heart. Um, what, how does Paul put it in Romans uh, 10? Um, if you confess with your, I'm going to quote it from the KJV because that's how I memorized it when I was growing up. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man uh, believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then he's a few verses later he says, "For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." That's Paul's. Um, very familiar formula for salvation. And if you notice in that formula, there's nothing in there that forces Trinitarian or tripersonal um, understanding of God's nature into the experience of 
coming to salvation. So um, many Christians don't enter into their experience, uh, into their born-again experience with this um, idea that, hey, I've, I've suddenly figured out that God's tripersonal, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Maybe they're kind of casually um, mentioned and introduced to them, uh, depending on how much church they've sat through before they go to make their profession of faith. But the point I'm trying to make is I'm going to make a break with most of my Trinitarian believers and say that I don't believe that a, a belief in Trinity is is um, a necessary requirement to be a genuine Christian. What I do believe, however, is that as you become a Christian and grow in your faith and walk, that the Holy Spirit will lead you into a Trinitarian understanding as you're properly reading your Bible, so, so much so that you will begin to affirm that Trinitarian theology is the proper way to approach God, and it will become a conviction of yours. And then, based on that, you will not accept other forms of representations of God. You'll be, you'll begin to reject Unitarian theology and a non-Trinitarian theology in the way that uh, most Trinitarians do. So that you'll champion Trinitarian theology, and you'll say that this is the right way to approach God, right? But you're only doing that from the seasoned Christian perspective, from your growth as a Christian. Earlier on, when you first became a Christian, it isn't necessary to affirm Trinity in order to become a Christian, to believe that Jesus is very God. Although, if, if that's given to you at the very beginning, that's great, that's a bonus. But most people don't go through that uh, in their Christian experience, and most descriptions of people who come to salvation and believe in Jesus throughout the Bible don't describe it, or at least the Bible doesn't describe it in ways that are... Um, markedly Trinitarian conversions or anything like that. Although, perhaps again, all three elements are brought up, and Paul certainly mentions all three, I say elements, all three persons, Paul certainly mentions all three persons in his letters, and he interweaves a Trinitarian theology into his letters, because that's accurate. So, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Let me continue my commentary. Um, I say, indeed, without the additional benefit of professing, I'm sorry, professional training in analytics, logic, or philosophy, like Dr. Tuggy holds, um, a layman's level understanding of the Bible and its God is perfectly fine to accomplish the goal of Messiah in bringing about the genuine, this is what I've been kind of alluding to, the genuine personal salvation of an individual, correct? So, um, again, I've heard Christians say, if you don't believe in Trinity, you're not really a Christian. And they base that on the fact that Trinity is such a staple of historic Christian doctrine, right? It's been with us from the very beginning. Contrary to what Unitarians try to explain to me and convince me, Unitarian cannot be assumed from the Bible. I'm sorry, but it can't. You cannot assume Unitarianism. What Unitarians can assume is monotheism. However, a belief in monotheism is not an affirmation of Unitarianism. It is true that Unitarians are monotheists, but it's equally true that Trinitarians are monotheists. So we can assume monotheism from the Bible, but we cannot assume Unitarianism. Unitarianism must be proven from the text. Trinitarian doctrine is what one arrives at when you take the Bible in total, remember script, total scriptura, and you take the Bible as authoritative, solo scriptura, and you let the Bible speak for itself. There is no way you can arrive at a non-Trinitarian perspective. Now, again, there are different 
um, versions of Trinity. There are different models of Trinity, but they're still Trinitarian models is the point I'm trying to make. The Unitarian perspective is simply a perspective that's not assumed. It can't be assumed. You must force it into the text by leaving out certain parts of the Bible because there are, and we're going to get to this sooner or later. We've already dealt with it, but we're going to deal with it again. There are passages that simply can't be understood any other way other than we're other than that we're dealing with a, a one God who's complex in his nature, right? Because of the, the language of the Bible, the practical understanding of the, the, the words that are described, that have been left behind for us in their most natural sense, even if you're only using an English translation. So... Don't get tripped up by a Unitarian who's going to tell you, well, all of the Bible writers were Unitarians. It's a Trinitarian view that was invented by the Catholic Church some 300 years after the Bible was written, you know, and uh, it's an invention of Catholic Christianity. And therefore, if you want to be a real genuine Christian, you need to go back to the original Unitarian perspective that Paul and the apostles taught and that Jesus believed and that the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament holds. That's the proper Unitarian, the original, blah, blah, blah. That's hogwash. That's not even historically fact, uh, factual and accurate. Number one, the Catholic Church didn't invent Trinitarian theology. And number two, right, go back and read your church history, people. Right, go back and look at your um, uh, original um, uh, original uh, church fathers and the way they spoke in Trinitarian language, right, which predates all of the the, the, the what we might call Catholic formulation of um, of uh, denomination. But number two. The um, the Old Testament doesn't support Unitarian theology. What it does support is monotheistic understanding. And there are different flavors of monotheism as well, so we have to be careful there, right? Judaism and Islam are monotheistic religions as well, but they reject Trinity. So the Bible supports monotheism, but it does not reject Trinitarian understanding of God. All right, I keep straying. Let's keep reading my own commentary. Let me have so much time of God. Uh, let me wrap this up and read this first uh, paragraph, and then we'll pick this up again next week. Um, this is my own commentary. I go on to say, as mentioned briefly in paper two, and which will be articulated later in paper two. I'm sorry, it's briefly mentioned in paper one, and which will uh, be articulated later in paper two. There's every good reason, I say, to consider an appeal to the triune nature of God as a mystery, an admirable approach to the topic, since it is easily understandable, and let's pull a quote from Isaiah 55, verse 8, right? When I say mystery of God, I'm going to close. I'm bringing my commentary to close, right? Let's um, wind things down tonight. Um, God reveals himself to us mysteriously, progressively. I have this disagreement with, with Unitarians all the time as well. Now, God isn't progressive. Everything he gives to us is right there in the Bible, and everything we need to know about God is right there. There's no later information that we need to um, wait for, for God to give it to us. I disagree with you. God initially reveals himself to us as in this understanding that there's one God and that there's no need to um, uh, try to imagine that there's more than one God. We, we start with the staple foundation truth that there's one God, but very, very early in the text, we're introduced with the complexity of God with these um, uh plural pronouns, us and we, right? Let us make God and let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? Genesis 1, 26. And, um, you know, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil when man ate from the tree of the garden. You know, God goes on to say, as he's watching the, watching the people build the Tower of Babel, let us go down 
and see what they're doing, right? We're going to confound the language. God's using these plural pronouns. Now, everyone's going to tell you, well, God was talking with the angels. God was speaking with Satan like he did in Job, right? The sons of God are approaching God, and Satan was there. And so there's this heavenly um, court, um, this heavenly audience that God dialogues with from time to time. But I disagree. In Genesis 1.26, he said, let us make God make man in our image. Last time I checked, no one except God has exclusive creator powers. So when we're talking about the way God reveals himself in the Bible, he starts off very basic. I'm one God. I'm the only God there is. I'm the only one true God. But as God develops uh, his identity and who he is and how he's interacting with humans, through the pages of his word, you know, we get into the prophets, we get into the writings, we get into the, the apostolic scriptures. We get more and more of a picture of who God is until we're face to face with the son of God who says, if you've seen the father, you've seen me. And I and the father are one and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to testify of me. And all of these different um, aspects of God that are further revealed in this progressive nature of God. But it all boils, it all goes back to and it's foundationally rooted and the idea that um, God is the only true God there is. So monotheism is the correct way to approach God, but he's complex in his, in his nature. He's the only true God there is. Um, so there's every reason to consider an appeal to Trinity. Uh, the triune nature of God is mysterious. Paul's the one who says, great is the mystery of godliness, right? Uh, that's not, let me flash that on the screen in post, right, in the, the, the passage. Paul's the one who's to use the word musterion in the Greek. I'm not the one who picked that up. Paul thinks it's a mystery, the godliness of God, that the fact that Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Um, you know, why is it a mystery that Jesus was revealed in the flesh if all humans were, hello, I was revealed in the flesh. What do I mean revealed in the flesh? I came as a human, right? Right? My mother and father brought me into this world, right? Praise God, Baruch Hashem. But it's not a mystery, right? But some Unitarians want to tell me, well, this verse that you see flashing on your screen that Paul's talking about, where, where the mystery of Jesus that he was revealed in the flesh simply says that means that he was um, he was born as a human. But wait a minute, wait a minute. It's a mystery because it's God with us, God dwelling among men in the person of Messiah, so that the Father is God and the Son is God, and yet the Son is not the Father. That's why it's mysterious. So what does Isaiah say in chapter 55, verse 8? Uh, in my uh, commentary, I quoted here. Isaiah says, quote, As high as the sky is above the earth are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. End quote. This is Isaiah quoting God himself. God is mysterious because he's higher than us. We cannot fully comprehend him. What we've got is what the what God has left for us in his word and what the spirit reveals to us. And that's adequate enough for us to approach God and to properly um, uh, worship God and um, surrender ourselves to God. But it's not the full total package. We don't, we're still seeing through this glass dimly, like Paul says, darkly, right? We, 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 we still have some, some misunderstandings to contend with because of the nature of human, uh, fallen human nature, right? We, we, until we put on perfection, we still are working with a bit of a, um, a, um, a disability when it comes to um, understanding God, all right? Um, uh, uh, we just can't fully comprehend him. But one day we'll be able to know him even as he knows us and even as uh, he is known. Uh, let's conclude this part of my commentary tonight um, uh, with this thoughts from my own notes here. I say, indeed, 
Um, this is just an introduction. Commenting on Hebraic thought versus Greek thought, uh, also see my paper one of this commentary for those notes on Hebrew versus Greek thought. And within the scope of attempting to unravel the ontological nature of God and Christological messi um, nature of God and Christology, Messianic author Tim Haig, here we go, there's Tim Haig once again, he is aptly noted, and then I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. Unless you want to go to my notes and read them on your own, you're welcome to do that. But that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy uh, as we bring begin to bring our study to a close, winding down in our study. We've got about 10 minutes left, and we've got to save some time for the video. The liturgy is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and I think I'll read all four verses um, this time. And I'm going to do something a little different. I'm just going to read the English tonight. I won't read the Hebrew, and then next week we'll just read the Hebrew and not the English. Uh, and so we'll do the same thing for both the uh, Hebrew and the Greek. We'll just read the English parts tonight, and the next week we'll read only the Hebrew and only the uh, the uh, Greek. But in the English, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, we're going to read down through 34. Uh, the writer says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32, uh, verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And then the final verse, verse 34 and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wonderful passages, and we've got to meditate on these particular verses, particularly as we pray for Israel and continue to keep her in our thoughts, because she hasn't been um, disobedient to the point that God has given up on her yet. Indeed, these passages speak corporately of a time when God is going to once again bring Israel to a place where she is going to contend with his son Yeshua and God's going to soften her heart and cause her to accept him. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Galatians chapter 3. The passage we're going to look at is Galatians 3 verses 10 through verse um, uh, 14, I believe it is. Uh, is that where I want to read? And who are thing who is Christ? Yeah, I think it's verse uh, 14. Yeah, so 10 through 14. Uh, starting at verse 10 right there, Paul says, uh, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse that is written, everyone, uh, written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 13, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's quoting from Habakkuk there. Verse uh, 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Quoting from Leviticus. Uh, and verse uh, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed, uh, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Probably quoting from Deuteronomy. And so Paul keeps bolstering his argument by quoting from the Tanakh over and over again because he recognizes that that is where the anchor of truth 
for the New Testament is found. I've said this over and over again. If you want to understand your New Testament, then study your Old Testament. And if you want to understand your Old Testament, then study your New Testament. That's just the way it works. Verse 14, Paul continues, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And I think that's where I want to stop with the uh, liturgy. So that'll do it for the liturgy for the, uh, the both the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures. Let's turn now to the um, uh, short little video for tonight. And after we watch the video, then we'll just simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate's A Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here is the question that we have for us tonight. What was the meaning and importance of the Jerusalem Council? And to be sure, this is going to be a very important study tonight. The issue before the council in Acts 15 primarily addressed the question of how Gentile Christians were to be included and recognized alongside their Jewish counterparts in remnant Israel. Believe it or not, in my understanding, that's the primary issue. The reason the answer was not obvious to the Jewish apostles is because of the long-standing theology among Jews that Israel was comprised of Jewish people exclusively. That's the foundational understanding. The conclusion of the council then was that Gentiles did not need to become proselytes in order to enjoy full covenant status in Israel, which naturally includes Torah slash law participation. The term circumcision in Acts 15, 1 and 5 was shorthand for, quote, conversion to Judaism, end quote. And that's going to help us understand the context of the chapter in question as we study it tonight, okay? So you guys need to firstly understand that. The council was not voting on how much law the Gentiles should keep in order to be saved, nor were they contemplating how much Torah Gentile Christians should be keeping after they become saved right? Believe it or not, even though that's the popular opinion on this particular chapter, that's really not the best way to approach this particular section of scriptures. And we're going to see this as we uh, uh, explain it later on. There was one primary question and it had to do with how Gentiles got into Israel. That's really the primary issue that was before them. Indeed, as the council would eventually decide, and as Peter had first testified in the home of Cornelius, the inclusion of the Gentiles was by the grace of God, not by means of a man-made ceremony. That's really uh, the primary point of them coming together. They need to talk about how do we fit the Gentiles in. How then do we understand the four prohibitions that we're going to read about later on in the chapter? Well, listen to this. In order to assure their acceptance into the newly emerging Messianic communities, the Gentiles were to make a decisive break with the pagan temple and its idolatry, which would involve ridding themselves of any of the pagan customs that mark that idolatrous form of worship. That's really, in my experience, the better way to understand the four prohibitions and how they would have been um, understood by the Gentiles. These four prohibitions are not a short list of how many commandments Gentiles must keep. Please understand that. As already pointed out, 
It was a list designed to promote peace within the Messianic communities. And based on this data, it's imperative then that we understand this central biblical truth. The bringing near of the Gentile believers was not affected through negating the Torah, that is, doing away with circumcision, etc. Right? It wasn't done that way, but through overcoming the rabbinic teaching that required Gentiles to, quote, become Jews, end quote, through becoming proselytes in order to be received into the covenant people of Israel. That was the barrier that they had to cross over, that they had to overcome, that they had to do away with. The gospel message of the apostles proclaimed that, like Abraham of old, covenant membership was based upon faith, not upon the flesh, that is not upon ethnic status, like the Jewish leaders of the first century were teaching. This is such a big issue that we need to work through. Acts 15.21 affirms one law for both Jews and Gentiles to obey, particularly as both groups will learn it in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And we read that, right? Moses is taught every Sabbath day. That's where Jews and Gentiles can learn. The yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear, like Paul said, or like Peter says in Acts 15.10, most certainly is not God's gracious Torah. It's a man-made system of righteous behavior as regulated by the prevailing policies of that day. That's the yoke that no one could bear, the extra fences that were built on top of Torah, right? Practically speaking, one Torah theology, quote-unquote, believes that God historically gave one covenant document to follow as a way of life for anyone wishing to identify as covenant Israel. Naturally, this would also include those from the nations who have been grafted into remnant Israel. Understand what I mean? The Torah is for Israel. This includes natural as well as remnant Israelites. And that's so important for us. Instead of purporting that the New Testament is for Gentile Christians and that the Torah was or is for Jews only, one law commits both Jews and Gentiles in Yeshua as children of faithful Abraham to follow after the Torah of Moses while retaining our distinctive ethnicities as Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Messiah. I don't think there's a more clear way to say that. Messianic Bible teacher Tim Haig's thoughts are fitting for our conclusion tonight. The mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the covenant people of God was not that the Gentiles would in fact be included, right? For this was actually known since the beginning, read Genesis 12, 3, etc. But the manner in which they would be included, namely, not as proselytes, but as fellow heirs and not as a separate group unto themselves. This was the mystery of the gospel, right? That the Gentiles would be blessed with the covenant blessings and that they should worship the one God of Israel was fully spoken of by the prophets. So Israel should have been prepared. They knew that the Gentiles were coming in, but they just didn't know how they would get in. So they created a man-made policy known as the proselyte ceremony, and that was their answer to bringing the Gentiles in. But the exact method, i.e. through the giving of the Spirit who would graft them in, This was only revealed in the apostolic era, at least in its fullness. That was why they were so confused as Jewish leaders. Why are these Gentiles coming to God as Gentiles? You know, what's what's going on? So that's that's how we're going to help better understand the passage. Even Peter himself was amazed that the Spirit was given to the Gentiles in the same manner as he was given to the Jewish believers in Acts 11, 15, right? Go back and read Acts 10 and 11 together and keep that in mind as you're reading through Acts 15 that Peter's already gone through that experience. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. 
But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the participation by the students. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to explain the words to us. Help us, Father, to continue to press in and to know you more. Even though we can't fully know you until one day we see you face to face. But we can't do that right now. We have to wait for you to change us. Even though you're changing us day by day, um, you know, causing us to grow and to understand you more and more as we avail ourselves of your words and your spirit. Nevertheless, Lord, we look forward to the day when uh, this corruption uh, puts on incorruption and we see you as you truly are and uh, we can worship you and praise you in, in the beauty of holiness. Thank you, Lord, for um, the study. Thank you for the students. Thank you for uh, the medium, this uh, mechanism of the YouTube and Internet and um, iTunes, and the podcast, and my website, and all the ways in which I'm able to take my thoughts and things that you're sharing with me over here in one part of the world and reach out through the internet, through this wonderful tool, and reach out to people around the world and interact with them, even if they disagree with me. It puts me in a place where I can grow, where my faith is stretched, and where I can learn new things uh, from uh, studying the text with other people. So bless us, Lord. Continue to keep us healthy. Keep us safe from COVID. Um, keep us um, fed, right? Uh, uh, help us to continue to rely on you for our um, for our uh, support and for uh, our very provision. And we'll continue to lift you up and praise you and glorify you and uh, give you all the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,